Well, former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev surfaced recently with an op-ed in the New York Times reminding us of the incredible, incredible arc of Russia's recent history. In the mid-'80s, Gorbachev instituted the system of reform perestroika to try to move the foundering Soviet Union from its rigid ideology and unbridled arms race. But top communist leaders balked and in 1991 attempted a coup which weakened reform. After the Soviet Union collapsed, Boris Yeltsin opted for even more radical reform, which plunged that country into chaos in the 90s. Yeltsin would transfer power to Vladimir Putin in 2000. Putin reinstituted a more authoritarian Russia that the current president, Medvedev, has voiced concern about, as does Gorbachev in his op-ed. But what really happened in the 90s? Mark Ames and Matt Taibbi were there. They were American expats who, for over 10 years, published The Exile, one of the most popular and most reviled newspapers in post-Soviet Russia. They were called Madmen, Pigs, Hypocrites, and Fiends, and that's a partial list from people who admired them. Because while people like Gorbachev now acknowledge that the 90s were a near-death spiral for Russia, at the time, Westerners in particular wanted the fledgling democracy to be a success and ignored ignored the corruption and poverty that Matt and Mark looked squarely in the eye. In the spring of 2008, government agents targeted their paper, The Exile, scared away investors, and thus caused it to shut down. But now the paper's story is told by writer James Verini in the current issue of Vanity Fair. James joins us from the Argo Studios in New York. James, welcome back to Here and Now. Thanks very much. And we also welcome back Mark Ames, who founded The Exile in 1997, later brought in Matt Taibbi. Listeners know Matt's been a frequent visitor on the program for his more recent writing for Rolling Stone. But, Mark, you visited us as well years ago to talk about The Exile. So welcome back to you, too. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And you're 44 now, about 31 when you started the paper. James writes about you being propelled to Russia. By what? From what? Uh, well, from California, from America, I guess, in the early 90s, which seemed, um, you know, boring while in parts of Eastern Europe, there was a, you know, once in a lifetime cataclysm going on. So that's what brought me to Russia. That and, and Russian books. Oh, oh, sure. In college, we, we should know you got hooked on Dostoevsky and Gogol. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you say you were bored here, others have... Uh, said that, well, you couldn't get hired here, and so went there. Was part of that the kind of writing you wanted to do? What did you want to do, some form of truth-telling? You're absolutely right that I couldn't get hired. In fact, I couldn't even get hired out in Moscow uh, by the Moscow Times. They were considering hiring me as a columnist, and the editor-in-chief, who uh, I believe is with the Wall Street Journal now, um, sort of brought me inside and said, you know, your stuff is kind of interesting, but... um, the way you write about Moscow, you know, Moscow in the 90s is not this wild place the way you're kind of describing it. It's a business community, and, and this is what people want to read about. And it didn't conform at all to what I saw, and I think most people saw there, which was it was a, it was a really messed up, grotesque, wild place. And I think most people kind of agree with that now. Well, we'll place us in time, because this was after the Soviet Union fell. He was being portrayed as a sort of a post-communist paradise, working its way towards a democracy. And Mark, you saw what? The place was completely devastated. It was like, uh, I don't know, the plague sort of swept through there. Everybody was drinking like turpentine, and um, you know nobody really could afford anything anymore. And People were also dying at an extraordinary rate. I mean, they were dropping off like flies. The death-to-birth ratio in Russia in the 90s is almost unprecedented in the 20th century. So give us some examples of your targets, not just Russian authorities, but Western reporters, world bankers, Wall Street. Tell us some of the targets of your paper. 
Uh, all the ones you named, uh, definitely ourselves, you know, half the time, because we, you know, pretty much thought we were disgusting people. Anybody who worked at the exile. Um, but uh, the bigger story was that there was this kind of official version of what was going on, which was that you know anybody who spoke English and mouthed the usual cant about uh, democracy and free markets and liberalizing this and that. Officially, those were the good people, and then officially, anybody was who wasn't with that program was some kind of revanchist, uh, communist, fascist, or whatever. And on top of it, it was clear to us that the Westerners weren't there. They weren't on a charity mission. Uh, they were destroying the place. They were uh, stripping it blind, making off like bandits, and empowering really the worst so-called young reformers are really the worst, most corrupt people in Russia. Really, early on, we were kind of shouting Cassandra's, you know, saying that what's going on here is not just sort of morally wrong, but it's going to blow back in, in pretty awful ways. And it's stupid and it's venal and sick. And we were accused of being communist half the time and fascist for, for talking that way. Well, <laughs> well, some of the things you did, Matt Taibbi uh, posed as a, an agent from the Jets in New York and to go meet with Gorbachev uh, under the pretense of wanting him to come be a, a coach for the team. Um, mm -hmm. He Matt also put on a gorilla suit and sat on the floor of Goldman Sachs in New York to protest uh, their sale of worthless Russian debt. Uh, and then you gave the worst foreign correspondent of the year award to the New York Times Moscow bureau chief Michael Wines. Now, mm -hmm. this is a, an infamous uh, tale that uh, James, you retell in the article. You slammed a pie yes, in his. Lovingly. Yes, yes he, he gave him a pie in the face. Uh, it included the reproductive material from a male horse. Uh, Liquid. Yes. Um, <laughs> why were you so angry at him, first of all? Well, one of the main targets of the exile was sort of like, well, if we're going to ruin our careers by doing this paper and sort of saying everything <laughs> we want to say and behaving how we want to behave, then we want to make sure that we take other people down with us and, and expose them for being frauds and for screwing up the story. And so for a couple of years, we were pointing out what hacks the Western correspondents were. And we had tournaments. What they get wrong? Well, everything. I mean, <laughs> there's really nothing they got right. What they were doing is they were whitewashing over and over real suffering that was going on there, Russians were dying like flies. And they were doing so under the auspices of our aid and our advice and our system and so on, and with our blessing. I'll give you just one example. I mean, Larry Summers, who's now the economy czar in the White House under Obama, this guy was writing decrees, economic decrees, sending them to uh, his liaison, this young reformer, Anatoly Chubais, in Moscow, and then he'd have Yeltsin sign them. This is unprecedented, and they knew it, and it was all out there. But nobody would report it except for the exile. James Farini, you talked to other reporters who were mm -hmm. there at that time, a Newsweek bureau chiefs, the Chicago yeah. Tribune. What they say about the exile? They said, uh, in retrospect, they got it right, and a lot of us didn't. This is they being the exile and Mark and Matt. They didn't buy into this narrative that the mainstream newspapers and CNN, et cetera, had bought into. Um, they all said they all, you know, read the exile uh, religiously. First to see whether they were going to get lampooned, they all did. You know, they just wanted to see how badly they got torn apart. But also because they knew the exile was presenting a side of Russia that they either didn't want to present or could not present or couldn't sort of find on their own. You write, one of them said, how can I get to that same story without mainlining cocaine? Because Mark and Matt often participated in the dark life they wrote about, as we're going to hear. That's James Farini. He profiles the newspaper The Exile and the founders in Vanity Fair magazine more in one minute, here and now. 
Welcome back. We're speaking with Mark Ames, the founder of The Exile, a now-defunct English-language newspaper in Russia that he published with Matt Taibbi. Also with us is James Marini, who writes about The Exile in the current issue of Vanity Fair. And James, Mark and Matt reported on a darker side of Russia, and they lived it as well. Matt wrote a series in which he worked as a bricklayer, a miner, he sold vegetables, went to a Moscow high school. Mark went into dangerous prostitute dens, and the exile also invited prostitutes to write their own stories in a series called Horror Stories. That's W-H-O-R-E-R. And one in particular about a prostitute that Mark visited in St. Petersburg? I would think the woman's name was Ira, former ballet student, maybe even ballerina, and her father had been uh, at a factory and was basically was let go, I think it was in St. Petersburg, and it was a result of... Some of the reforms that Putin had actually, quote unquote, reforms that Putin had instituted in the industrial zones in in St. Petersburg, and he, you know, he was a, an alcoholic, and she was supporting at least part of her family by doing this. And where she and Mark end up is at this apartment complex where the people are so badly off that they have to let their apartments, you know, by the hour, or by the half hour, to old babushki were letting. Yeah, you yeah. come in, pay for an hour, and, and yeah. To people like Ira, you know, and, and she carries around this razor that she shaves with. I thought it was right out of uh, Dostoevsky, and it was the kind of thing that you so rarely read uh, in journalism anywhere. Those, the prostitute story, for example, prostitution story, I mean, this, it was emblematic of the relationship between Westerners and Russians after communism fell. And it was also physically... Um, the big experience that, you know, an overwhelming percentage of male Western expats, and most expats in Russia were male because it was considered a fairly dangerous place. And to not do that story is to not be a journalist. Uh, And you couldn't get that story without living that story as well. But, you know, in terms of danger, I mean, for me, the most dangerous or frightening thing would have been to work in an office in a cubicle in, uh, you know, in San Jose, California, where I'm from. I, honestly, like, that to me would have led very quickly to heart disease, diabetes, <laughs> and, and a wretched death. And, and Mark, I just, uh, James, in his writing, uh, says that it read like the bastard progeny of Spy Magazine and an X-rated version of Per Richard's Almanac. It certainly was read by a lot of people, even your enemies in the Western press in, in Russia. As you look back and you look at Putin's Russia today... Did it make a difference? Um, yeah, it made a difference. It didn't alter history, I suppose, but uh, it made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Uh, probably a lot of people are scarred <laughs> for life. And, and But I think it's, it was also an inspiration for a lot of people. I mean, I think a lot of writers are frustrated and um, would like to be able to write without worrying about all the different consequences. I mean, I, in fact, when this article came out in Vanity Fair, that's what I had some... Uh, journalists here telling me that it was such an inspiring story and they wanted to start up their own sort of exile in their own you know what their exile would be like not necessarily doing horror stories or something Um, but I think we did have a pretty significant influence in shifting the debate about whether Yeltsin and young reformers and our whole mission there was a good thing and the right thing and were we backing the right people and in 98 when things started getting a bit shaky and um 
the mainstream Western press stuck by Yeltsin and stuck by reforms really as a matter of faith. You know, there was a lot of resistance to what our version of events was. And, and it wasn't just because we were such geniuses. It was because Matt and I went native. And we didn't really see the point of being in Russia unless you went native. Uh, whereas the rest of the Western press corps drove around in nice Western cars with Russian drivers. They lived in nice apartments that were gated. You know, some of them didn't even know Russian, didn't know much about the history of the place. So, you know, we were the only ones who said that the economy was definitely going to collapse and that they were going to default and so on and so forth. And then when it collapsed, journalists for a while had to think a little harder before they wrote some kind of BS about And that uh, includes yeah. financial journalists as well. I spoke to financial people in finance and financial journalists who said, you know, yeah, the exile saw this collapse before anybody else did, or at least was willing to talk about it before anybody mm -hmm. else was willing to talk about it. And the tone. The tone was dark humor. I think that's probably what makes the exile actually, re if, you were, if you guys had approached a lot of these stories without humor and without a sort of self-flagellating aspect, it probably would have been too much to report on and too much to read. For Western readers, yeah. I, I think so, yeah. Because, we, I mean, they, the, a lot of these stories really did mess with our heads, uh, you know, a lot of the times. And, and thank God for drugs, you know, to, to, to numb you a bit, because um, they really did. But, you know, over time, I mean, Russia under Putin started to sort of, um, I don't know, ossify a little bit or, or get a, a little bit more predictable. And at the same time, my country was like collapsing, like, you know, Russia under Gorbachev was. I mean, uh, the decline in America and the corruption and the insanity here was something that I started to increasingly sort of regret not being here in my own country. And you really realize, you know, if you stay there, then you got to become a Russian. And I'm, I'm not a Russian, you know, I'm American. And in some ways I started becoming, I think, I don't know, almost a little bit more American or Californian uh, in those last few years, like really feeling in my roots or something. It was so, also becoming increasingly difficult to be a journalist in Russia at that time. Well, yeah, that, that's true. Um, it was getting scarier, and the scary incidents were starting to multiply. As, yeah, as journalists were being times. killed. Anna Politkovskaya and Paul Klebnikov and on and on. Those are just the more famous examples. There were lots of reporters, and it has not stopped. Yeah. I mean, we had a few scary moments in the first four or five years. But the last sort of four years had just, I mean, so many insane, frightening moments that uh, yeah, they probably took a few years off my life anyway, yeah. That's Mark Ames, founder of the now-defunct English-language newspaper in Russia, The Exile. Today, from his home in Brooklyn, he edits the paper's online version, uh, which covers things not Russian. He also contributes to The Nation and The Daily Beast. Uh, James Varini writes about the rise and fall of the exile in Russia in the current issue of Vanity Fair. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you.